Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. Good morning. All right. I'm a boisterous person, for lack of better words. So I'm, I'm here, and if you're, if you're with me, you can feel free to just like talk back at me. That's part of my personality. All right. We came to do church. This will be great. Church is a verb where I come from. So we're going to just church a little bit today. And so um, a few things about me just really quickly in a non-narcissistic fashion. Um, I'm from Seattle originally. Like I'm a Seattle boy born and raised. Anyone from the Pacific Northwest originally? Yes, my people have moved. But bless God for you. I understand. I understand. Um, I'm from the Pacific Northwest. My dad is from Oakland, California originally, and he transplanted. My mom is um, from a small village in the heart of Ethiopia, and she is also in Seattle. Um, I have an incredible grandmother who's 87 and still drives. Like, she's the most incredible woman on the planet, and she, I'm afraid of her. I listen to what she says, because she's a wise woman, and she's, like, probably watching right now. She'd be like, honey, why did I? Anyway, let's move on. I love you, Grandma. Um, I have two incredible brothers. One is in uh, New York State studying at Columbia in medicine, and the other one is at Berkeley studying to become a professor. So we're like literally a bar joke where you have like a doctor, a professor, and a pastor walk into a bar. And I'm like, all right, that's our, that's our family. So three boys making your immigrant mother proud of high education, and there we go. Um, I think it's so cool to get to be here because we're family. No, but we're family. Like, it's cool to be people who don't know each other, people who, like, we've never, most of us, we've never interacted, never met before, yet, like, we step into a space like this, and all of a sudden, regardless of your ethnicity, your nationality, where you're from, socioeconomic background, like, it don't really matter because we're family. I think that's such a beautiful thing that, like, only in Jesus you get a room of a bunch of people who would by no other means come together. Like, that's, that's pretty stinking great. And so today, um, I'm really excited to get to be with family. So thank you so much to, like, Darren and Alex and John and Haley and like, Sev and all these sort of people who have been just, like, making this happen, not only for me to get to be here, but for each of us every week. It's like a beautiful thing, and you guys are a beautiful community. I got to visit Garden once, like two or three years ago, and I'm, I um, do a lot of like ministry stuff. And so I, not preaching, but just like in my own life, I was doing a lot. And so I was just like, I just want to come, hide in the back, like nobody see me. It was before masks, and I was still just like, oh, I don't want to be sick. I just want to sit, and I just came, and like the hospitality and the kindness that so many people in this room showed me as a complete stranger who was just visiting Long Beach for a weekend and just wanted to worship with other followers of Jesus, like it was incredible. So the spirit that you have here. You guys really have something beautiful, and I want you to like know that and like step into it. And so we're about to get into the scripture, but before that, I want to let you one more, know one more thing about myself. I, um, as you can already tell, and like my heart rate is at like 95 BPM right now. I'm just like shaking. Um, but I come from a church tradition, actually a couple different church traditions, but one of them is one that's very um, maybe extroverted or like responsive, expressive. And so if that's the space that you're in where you like to talk back, um, I grew up in a tradition or a tradition that like if you're doing a good job as a community, like a church mother would stand up and like make a fizz face at you and shake her head and say, take your time, baby. And so if that's where you're at, you can say that. I also drank too much water today, so I won't take too much time. Um, but wherever you're at, if you want to amen, if you want to say holla at your boy, yesterday's Beyonce's birthday, you can say slay, I don't care. Um, and I might even give one of those like, turn to your neighbor. And tell them, anyone grow up in that church where you say, turn to your neighbor, hit three people next to you and say, Jesus loves, you know. And so we're just going to go 
in. Now, the last thing I'll say is this. Whenever we gather together, it's so important that um, I think we do one thing. We don't come together on a Sunday or any time to, go, to walk away saying, oh, that was really good worship, which is incredible. But it's not to say, oh, that was good community or good response time or a good prophetic word or a good sermon. The goal by the end of today is not to walk away and say that was a good this or that. The goal is to walk away and say that is a good God. And so in the next few minutes, regardless of what happens with the teaching or the music or anything like that, the whole point is, God, Spirit of God, what are you doing? What are you saying? What is your goodness, your kindness, your invitation to me here, right now, in this moment, today? So if you're ready to learn and think about, consider, like gaze upon a good God, would you open your Bibles, turn them to, swipe them over to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and then when you have it, or even if you don't, um, would you please stand for the reading of Scripture? If you're willing and able, if you're willing and able, you're, don't feel pressure, but if you're willing and able, please stand as just a sign of the real thing we're listening today is not a person speaking, it's the scripture, it's the words coming from Jesus' lips. So even if it helps you for a moment, just take a deep breath in and let it out and maybe be opened to what Jesus is saying. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother or sister's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your sister or to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look? There's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your sister or brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs, or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. May we be good hearers and better doers. May we love Jesus deeply. May we trust what Jesus says. And may we follow Jesus well. Amen. If you're younger than your mother, you may be seated. You might take a moment. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. Congratulations to those young mothers, I guess. All right. Younger than your mother. Here we go. Um, how many of you in the room have children? How many of the room have children? How many children? Some of you are like, I'm married to a child. Does that count? Like, how many of you? Okay, a few of us. I'm in this season of life where um, some of my friends, actually more of my friends are having kids or their kids are growing up, and it's crazy. I love my friends' kids so much. I'm so glad, like, I don't have kids yet. I'm, I'm so excited to have kids one day. But right now, I'm like, this is so fun. I get to play with you, give you sugar, and like, see ya. Love you. Deuces. Time with Uncle Christian, right? And so I love that. And I've been talking to some of my friends recently about, like, kids and the things we learned. And did any of you grow up with kind of, like, nursery? rhymes or like these kind of one line, I, it's kind of bright. Yes, no, maybe. Yes. Okay. Um, so I, I need your help just for a moment. I want you to just, I, I was thinking about the nursery rhymes and the stories and the songs that kind of formed us and taught us as we learned um, as kids. And some of them were coming to my mind this week, like, and you can help me finish this one. An apple a day. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. More of you. Okay. Y'all didn't raise your hands, but you know. All right. All right. A spoonful of sugar. 
makes the medicine, which is very poor advice, but you know, let's go with it, Mary Poppins. Um, okay, this one's one of my mom's favorites. I brought you into this world. I'm like, mom, I'm 29, she don't care. What about this? If you don't have anything nice to say, or one of the most famous of them all, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. But words have hurt me deeply. And as I see some of you nod, you would know that words have hurt you too. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words can wound you so deeply and cause hurt and pain and trauma, and it can give us identity and and just things that we live with for years and years and years of our lives. I remember being in the 10th grade, walking through the halls of my church, and I remember hearing two older leaders in the church um, making fun of me behind my back. They didn't know I was there, and I turned the corner. Wounds can, words can wound you quite deeply. They never, to this day, would never know that I heard those things but the way they can still replay in my mind. Anyone been there? For those things that people say, the words, the judgments, which is why judgment, you know the interesting thing about judgment, it can cause and change the trajectory of someone's life. The words that someone says so easily can flip your paradigm. It can shape your heart. It can change your mind. It can change the whole way that you perceive yourself. So when Darren texted me, hey, we're gonna, we'd love you to come teach Matthew 7, and I'm like, isn't that the judgment thing? Like, homie, that's not what you do for guests. You don't say, hey, come teach at my church. Oh, by the way, it's on judgment. Like, not in 2021, not on the West Coast. I don't want to be that guy. So I judge Darren for the judgment that he gave me today. I disapprove of what he's done. But when he texted me to teach on judgment, I did what any good like Bible scholar or teacher would do. I Googled. And so I went to Google and I typed in, what does the Bible say not to do? Here's the top 10 things it says. Uh, People search this. Autofill. The Bible says, uh, don't call someone fool. All right. Don't talk to the dead. Sweet, I'm here for that. Don't get tattoos. All right, some of you, you're out. Um, Don't eat shellfish or shrimp. Sorry, West Coast. Don't charge interest on loans. And everyone who went to university said, amen. Yes. Don't call anyone father. Sorry, pops. Do not worry. Listen to the podcast. At number two, don't judge. People intuitively, the thing they know about scripture, the second thing they know is don't judge, only to be beaten by don't eat pork. Hello, America. (laughs) But it's interesting that one of the things people know about Christians, one of the things they even agree with, people who don't follow Jesus agree with the teachings of Jesus, and one simple thing, don't judge. We live in a society, in a world that's like, do not judge me. It comes up in our sayings, be true to yourself, live your truth, you do you, boo. Haters gonna hate, don't listen to the haters. It's in our songs, Tupac, only God can judge me. Bob Marley's judge not. Or even if you think about it, like just for a moment, Taylor Swift's shake it off, what is she saying? She's actually saying, don't listen to the judgment, don't listen to the haters. Or the prophet Elsa, let it go. (laughs) No rules, it won't bother me. Now I'm free. I don't have to listen to the judgments or the thoughts or the opinions of anyone else, even in the kids' songs that we sing and spend a lot of money on. We're being told, don't judge. There's this conviction in our society that no one should judge, and I think it comes from like four different cultural assumptions. One, that religion is private. Two, that morality is relative. Three, that no one can really know who's right. So four, the highest good 
is to not infringe on anyone else's truth or don't infringe on their way of living. Therefore, the conclusion logically would be, live your truth. Follow your heart. Do the thing that you want to do as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. Or in our culture, society's definition is love. And then to infringe on someone's truth, to infringe on someone loving, to infringe on somebody being truly who they are or just living any way that they want to live is, would deem you as a hater or hateful or harmful, judgmental. Yet at the same time, we, we have this conviction that we should never judge, we should never tell anyone that they're wrong or how they should live or what that they should do or anything that they do is wrong. Yet at the same time, our Western world believes that some things are wrong, even if it's being judgmental. We're judged about judging. Seems odd. Our Western world has tons of things that we actually think is wrong. Things like trafficking, or injustice, or high incarceration, or, expo- or like infringing on someone's freedoms. We, hold, we live in this tension, and maybe even I say this, like, th- th- this, this conviction that you shouldn't judge, yet we judge certain things are wrong. And so if everyone lives their truth, what do we do? And what happens when two truths collide, where they're not compatible? What happens when our different ways of living actually put us into tension and we have to some degree judge, even if we would never say it with our mouths? We long for a world where people can live as they want, or dare I say, where people are safe, right? We each long for a world where everybody is safe, where people belong, where they feel loved, where they feel seen, where they're in so many words, dare I say, free. We long for that world and yet we can't judge, so we don't really know how to make that world possible. And it's to that ache that Jesus teaches his followers, do not judge. Or in the words of Yoda, judge not, you will. Don't do it. Seems straightforward enough, right? Like, why, why? Well, easy. He puts it out there. Don't judge. And I love that sometimes, you know, Jesus is like kind of cryptic and parables and all this stuff. And then sometimes Jesus is like, let me tell you why, so that you won't be judged. Like, plain and simple, we can all go home now, please don't get up. For verse 2, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And this is one of those awkward things in Scripture that, to be honest, I still don't fully have my mind around. People disagree in church and theology. But there's something going on in Jesus' teaching that there's an intrinsic relationship between the way that we relate to God and the way that we relate to other people. Jesus taught on it in the Sermon on the Mount earlier on, for, on forgiveness. He says, if you forgive others, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Jesus talks about it later with mercy. The same way, do you remember the parable of the unmerciful servant? The way that we interact with each other. God, somehow, there's this weird intrinsic relationship, or even as Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There's this weird intrinsic relationship somehow between the way we interact with others and the way that God interacts with us. So what does that mean for Jesus then to prohibit judging others? Well, the word in Greek, it's krino. You couldn't be in a sermon without hearing something in Greek. So let's try it saying it together. Crino. Say it like you're not afraid to fail. There we are. Beautiful. On the base level, it's about distinguishing, differentiating. Like, um, how many of us like ice cream? That was a very sad response for people who like ice cream. You like ice cream. Okay. Um, Okay. You have two options. You have to pick. Everyone has to do this. Um, If you, the two choices are sherbet or cookie dough. All my sherbet people, like, give it up for sherbet. Sherbet, 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 sherbet. Beautiful. Keep your hand up. We're going to pray for you in Jesus' name. (laughs) Maybe set free. All right. And all cookie dough people right here. Yes. 
See, do you hear the joy in the room for cookie dough over sherbet? We get it. That right there is judging. You're differentiating between two different things. Just on the base level, you're making a judgment between two different things to distinguish. Jesus actually constantly asks us to do this thing. All throughout the scripture, we're called to make distinguish, to distinguish, to differentiate, to judge, to test, to understand the difference between two different things. That's why later Jesus will even talk about dogs and pigs. At the very least, you have to know the difference. Now, Carino goes further then than just differentiating and distinguishing. It talks about giving the other idea behind it, though. It's a little deeper. It's about valuing. It's about finding worth. It's about measuring or weighing. Imagine being in a market where you're bartering and you're trading grain and maybe you're putting it on the scale to see how much it weighs. You're judging, you're weighing, you're measuring. Which is why a famously misquoted scripture, Luke 6.38, given it will be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be measured back unto you. It's the same, actually it's Luke's version of the same thing. And you want to know what it says right before. It's not about money, even though I do think there is this relationship towards our finances with giving and giving back. But he's actually talking about right before. Jesus says, forgive. He says, do not condemn to show mercy and do not judge. Press down, shaken together, running over. It'll be measured back to you. There's this relationship. And it's not so much just about having the ability to evaluate or distinguish. No, no, no. It's about assigning value or worth or meaning or weight. Then Jesus asks this question, and he wants us to answer it. So what I want you to do here is not just be a listener. Like, I want you to interact with Jesus as he teaches, as he explains. Jesus goes, hey, um, Boo, why do you look at the splinter in your sister or your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam in your own. Have you ever compared a splinter to a beam? Like, there's a massive difference. While they're made up of the same thing. Actually, technically, a beam is just what? A bunch of little splinters. But the, you see the disproportionality to it. It's, it's, like, it's like comparing a flower to a field. It's like staring at, like, a sprinkle over the cake. It's like a teardrop compared to a river. It's like, do you see how small this is compared to the real thing? The stuff, what Jesus is getting at, the stuff often in our own lives is out of proportion compared to the things that we're judging others. One scholar said, the meaning is not that in every case the person passing judgment is a worse sinner than the one he criticizes. It is rather that what he finds wrong in his brother or sister is a very small matter compared with the sin God sees in him or her. Me and my girlfriend, her name is Yinka, so if I say Yinka, you'll just get it. She's Nigerian. Everyone in, like, half of Nigeria's name is Yinka. You say Yinka and the dog turns. And so um, my girlfriend Yinka, um, she's incredible. She, she was here with me in Long Beach, and then she ended up going back to Portland today um, or last night. We went to Disneyland yesterday, which is probably also why, I'm, or two days ago, which is also why my heart rate is like, through the roof. Um, but we went to ramen on date night this week. We do date night every week as a wise thing to do. And so we did date night and we went to this ramen spot and we get, we order our thing and um, she's an Enneagram nine and I'm a three, which means we couldn't be more opposite in how we make decisions. And so if you're into the Enneagram cult and so um, we, we, we do that. And so we finally sit down and I rip open the, I rip open the chopsticks and I do as any like person who should know what they're doing, or I don't do this. Um, I rip them open and I grab them. And what you, what are you supposed to do with chopsticks? You're supposed to like yeah, you, you do the, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. No, Chaboy didn't do it. And so I grabbed the chopsticks and I got it and immediately I yell out and I'm like, oh my God. And I had that same scare. Yinka was scared just like that. And, Yinka, and I just go like this and she's like, what? And goes on to eat. And um, have you ever like tried to see a splinter? It's pretty difficult. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? 
that you are straining. Like to see a splinter, you have to strain and be so close and be fixated on something so small, so like infinitesimal that you're, you have to get your eye so close to see it. Jesus is talking about the way that we just get fixated and focused and try to look and you have to be so tuned in and clear to see something so small. And it's interesting to me that Jesus here, he starts by the word looking. Think about that. Have you ever noticed that? I just did this week when I was writing this teaching. She says, what? You notice that you're looking. You're looking. Why do you look at your sister and brother? You look at the splinter. Not say, look. Which means that you can judge without even opening your mouth. How many of us have felt that? Where it wasn't the word someone said, it was just the look that they gave. It was just the way that they saw you. It was the way that you just walked into the room and they treated you. The way your body language said something. How many of our issues and the judgments that we feel didn't even come out of the lips of someone's mouth. Which is so like Jesus because he goes, oh baby, you could not even say another word and still be judging because typically judgment starts somewhere a lot deeper. Jesus constantly is going after the thing that's like so deep inside. Do you remember earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus started talking and he said, oh, you think you're fine, boo, because you don't murder, but you have hatred and superiority in your heart and you've already committed it. Oh, you think you're fine because you haven't cheated on your spouse, you haven't committed adultery. Oh, but if you even do the double take, Jesus is constantly going a little bit deeper. He says, oh, you're not even saying it, but even with a look. Why do you look at your sister or your brother? He goes on to say, how can you say, let me take the splinter out of your eye? Which goes to show judgment typically starts from an inward attitude and then moves to outward actions. Notice that Jesus never says, now listen to this. This is important. It almost critiques our world a little bit. Notice that Jesus never says that the intent of the judger is wrong. Isn't that interesting? Often when the person judges, all of a sudden we get defensive. But Jesus never says the intent is wrong. He doesn't even say the person was wrong or that she shouldn't help. Jesus is saying that the first problem is that the person cannot actually see well. You can have good intentions and still the wrong impact. You can have really good intent and still the wrong impact. Just like this. Look at these photos real quick. People with good intentions. Blind person cross here. Terrible impact. Next one. Useless. That's rough. Um, Next one. Great intention. And to my next one, the favorite one. Caution, this door opens outward. Please do not stand directly in front of the doors, and then it's in Braille. Good intention. Horrible impact. We have to be aware of the impact. Turn to somebody next to you and say, we got to be aware. Uh, Now look at the other person you just ignored and say, come on, you got to be aware. We've all probably been rubbed the wrong way by someone who wasn't too self-aware, haven't we? The friend who's always late commenting on the one time you're running a little behind, and you texted to say you're running behind. I hit, I hit someone, sorry, just don't look at your spouse. The friend who isn't good with money telling you what to spend on. The friend who's always in bad relationships giving relationship advice. This sort of help can be pretty degrading, can't it? Yeah? It's degrading and almost at times can be dangerous. It's why we don't have a lot of blind surgeons. It's not because surgeons aren't incredible, or blind people are not incredible. It's not because they're less human, but it's because it can be dangerous to operate on someone's life when you don't 
really see. And who does Jesus say that we begin to operate on? Who is it that he says? He says, it's your, why do you do this to your sister, to your brother? Do you realize that the people that we constantly judge, it's not just the person out there. It's not the person on the other end of your post. It's not the thing you're subtweeting about. It's not the person that you're like, oh, but I got to get the Democrats. I got to get the liberals. I got to get the Republicans. I got to get the conservatives. I got to get the people who are this, that. It's your sister. It's your brother. It's people. It's people who Jesus cares about deeply. It's people who are actually just as human as you. It's people who, if you lived the same life experience, you would probably be in the same spot as them. It's your sister and your brother. It's people who you're wounding. It's people who you're hurting. It's not a screen. It's not a post. It's not a campaign. It's not a political stance. It's not just an issue. It's, it's people. It's people God cares about. It's people God loves. It's people who are hurting. It's people who are judging. And Jesus actually isn't, isn't even talking right now about the world out there. Friends, he's talking about people in our own family. He's talking about our sisters and brothers. Can I tell you how heartbroken I am by people in the past years who stopped following Jesus, who can't step foot inside of a building because of one political party or another, because they don't feel close to people anymore. To people, not issues. You'll stay around and argue issues, but it's people. And it's so interesting that as we wound people, what often happens is we exclude ourselves from the community of sinners and we exclude others from the community of saints. Isn't that what typically happens deep down in the heart? Are you with me? Where all of a sudden people begin to be like two-dimensional. They're not really that complex. They're just boiled down to one moment or to one decision. Isn't it interesting that how often when someone else lies, we call them a liar, but when we lie, we just had a moment. How easily do we label and name and measure and weight people? We begin to measure them. Do you know what Jesus calls that? Beams. It's a beam in your eye. As one scholar said, following Christ requires our recognizing that the one I am tempted to judge is like me. A person who has already received the forgiveness manifest in the cross. Imagine Jesus saying that on that hillside while the breeze is blowing over Galilee, looking at Simon, the zealot, and the Levi, the tax collector. Do you realize, this isn't even my sermon, but do you realize who these two guys were? A zealot and a tax collector. A zealot, or actually a tax collector, these are the people, these are Jews who have decided instead to get in bed with Rome, they begin to tax all the other Jewish people and take a percentage off. So not only are the Romans giving high tax, now these tax collectors who are Jewish are taking an extra like, percentage off of them. They're stealing from their own people that are under the boot of an oppressive empire. Tax collector. On the other end is a zealot. They would train and f- they would train and learn how to fight. And actually, they were often known for keeping um, knives and daggers under their cloaks and step into the market squares and kill Roman soldiers in the middle of the market and slip back away. And you know who Jesus says, come and follow? Me, too. Tax collector and the zealot. Do you know who Jesus says, do not judge, too? The tax collector and the zealot. Do you know who these people are? They're people who couldn't be further on the political or social or economic visions for life. And Jesus says, come and follow me. Oh, by the way, this is your brother. Do not judge. Jesus has a word for the blind trying to help the blind. Calls him a hypocrite. 
hypocrite. First, take the beam out of your eye. Now, if you can suspend your idea of what hypocrite is in our modern culture, a hypocrite is just the word for an actor. It's like, do you remember like those plays? You've ever seen it in like childhood where you wear the, you have the little face and it's like sad or like really happy. You have like the, the mask wearer. It's a person wearing a mask. And what's interesting, there's something on your face. Other people, they see the mask, but the actor doesn't see the mask. They don't deal, actors don't deal with their real selves. It's not malice here. Now listen, it's not malice. It's not even intentional deception. It's blindness. It's failure to see. Jesus is saying, you don't see clearly. You don't see well. But he's so loving. Jesus is so loving. He's not condescending. He's not attacking. He's just like a surgeon getting down, doing a biopsy, getting down to the root of the issue. Jesus is showing that we're often blind to self while deeply focused on others. It's interesting that we have a profound, often have a profound, and this is myself, I often have a profound ignorance of myself that's unfortunately paired with a presumptuous knowledge about others, especially their faults or even their motives. How many arguments to all the people in relationships, how many arguments happen because you assume people's motives? You write a whole narrative. Someone does one action. And can I just give a quick piece of advice? Just, this is nothing to do with this, but just a quick. When you see people doing certain actions, do not write a story about their motives. Let me say this again. When you see people doing certain things, saying certain things, do not write their backstory. You will save so much heartache if you do not write the backstory of people's motives. We have this weird presumption that we understand people's faults and their motives. And Paul like talks about this a little bit in Romans 2, if you read that at some point. Like he does this, and this is my analogy summing up Paul. But Paul talks about, do you who preach do not lie, do you lie? And could you imagine all of a sudden if like everything that you ever did, and, and let me just be more specific, every advice you ever gave to somebody was like recorded, it was put on a screen like in this moment. And then every time you went to go give somebody advice, or actually, you, and actually every time you lived, the advice that you gave other people was on a screen. How would you stand up to your own judgments? Now, what if it wasn't just the advice you said? What if it was every thought that you had, every time you looked at somebody and you judged, every time you said, oh, they shouldn't live this way or I wouldn't do it that way? Would we stand up to our own judgments? No, we can't even stand up to the judgments we give other people. How many problems? So we're, we're, it's funny because we're like doing all these judgments constantly to other people and we're not focusing on ourselves. And Jesus is saying we're so blind to ourselves. And how many problems in our society happen because people are too blind to themselves or too focused on everybody else? How many kids feel neglected and realize it later in their 20s and 30s that their parents were doing everything else? But we're, we're so focused on their kids, but the parents actually never dealt with themselves. And it caused a lot of pain. Let's get more specific. Myself as a pastor, how many moral failures have we seen even in the last two years? Because pastors and preachers and teachers and writers and scholars and thinkers and leaders were so focused on everybody else's faults and problems and sins and healing and never got the healing that they needed themselves. All of a sudden, this issue gets close to home because it's not just out there somewhere. It's in me and it's in you. So much of our pain in this life, it comes not from people who tried to hurt others, but from people who didn't get healing themselves. Let me say it again. So much of our pain and our problems don't come from people who tried to hurt others, but from people who didn't really get healing themselves. 
So the first thing that Jesus wants his people to do is deal with themselves. Or as the philanthropist Moira Rose once said, if airplane safety videos have taught me anything, it's that a mother puts her own mask on first. Take the beam out of your eye and then you'll see clearly. Again, Jesus assumes, listen to Jesus' assumption here. It's not that the person's wrong. It's actually that we don't see clearly. How beautiful then would the church be if I was less eager to point out the specks in my siblings' eyes and more aware of the beams of my own? Like, could you imagine what church and family in the city, like, what if there was a community in the city that was so self-aware, that dealt with themselves before they dealt with other people? Could you imagine what that would be like to step into? Could you imagine how beautiful, how disarming, how non-judgmental in the best of ways that would be if we were people who would deal with ourselves? Like, wouldn't that make the world a better place? It would make the world so much better. It would make Long Beach so much better. It would make Portland so much better. How do we make the world better? What if we just start with ourselves? Even as Michael Jackson once sang, if you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make that yeah, all right, you're with me. Oh, we got some singers. We get Jesus' point down deep, right? We get it deep down in our hearts. But the irony, the irony here is that we actually can't see ourselves on our own, right? Like, we actually can't. We need community to do it. When you have something in your eye, you actually, when something's on your face, you actually need someone to poke it out. Like, or to point it out. My girlfriend recently, she, we've been talking about this, and we've been talking about how relationships are the, typically the ground by which God reveals most of the stuff in our lives. Like, a lot of times we're, like, praying, we're asking God, make me, God, help mature me, help me be more in love, help me be a better person, and then God does that through people, and not through just your knees in the prayer closet or your time in worship, but when you're with your spouse, and they talk about that thing that you're, like, weren't in the headspace for at the time, but they want to deal with it right now. Who is helping? So here's my question. Like, who's helping you with your log? Like, who's helping you with the beam? Who, who, and not passively. This is, I think, one of the problems that I even had growing up in the church is that, like, every form of accountability is post. It's like you make a mistake and then somebody helps you. But who have you actively invited into your life to help you get the beam out? Like, who have you said, hey, listen, I don't need to even ask again. I don't need you to wait for me to mess up. I want you, do you see, is there something in my eye? Is there something, can you, is there something? Is there something I don't see? Is there something that you're seeing that I'm not aware of? I, I just may not know. Would you help me? Like, do you see, can, can you show me? Who have you invited? Who have you actively asked? Turn to somebody and say, will you help me? Will you help me? Do it. Turn to somebody and say, will you help me? Will you help me? Look in the eyes. Say, oh, I see you. Like, you're not a dude. Just say, will you help me? We need people to help us. And maybe the answer to our prayer for maturity is found in God sending people. Maybe the desire for deeper community is actually found in God sending people. Maybe the closeness to God that you have been desiring and wanting, it's actually coming through people exposing the planks. Maybe that is actually not a hater. It's God showing up to you in skin and bone and flesh through people. Doesn't that sound so much like our God to put on skin and bone and show up in flesh? Maybe people are the sandpaper that God uses on our splinters. Unfortunately, we so easily get defensive, right? Like, we react. We go, only God, can, you know, even deep in our hearts. We don't want to say it out loud, but we have that mantra that we live with. Like, only God can judge me. Anybody else, like, have that? Maybe you don't say it, but that's like the visceral reaction. Which, by the way, I would much rather you judge me than God. Just being honest. Like, y'all don't see everything. He does. 
only God can judge me is a pretty stupid mantra if you're like weighing it out. I'm like, judge me, boo. I'm not seeing you tomorrow. Like, he's going to see me. But isn't it true that we so quickly get defensive and all of a sudden we get all weird and, and uptight? And don't get me wrong, it's hard to receive those things. I'm not here telling you that every day I like to hear the criticism. I like to be, have the planks revealed and the specs revealed. Just ask my girlfriend. I do not like it and I don't take it well all the time. But some of us, what we do is we excuse ourselves from being confronted because we know about the confronter's specs and beams. Some of us excuse ourselves from being confronted because we know about the confronter's specs and beams. And we just have to hear, not misuse Jesus' teaching. That's not his point. He's not saying just because you know what's going on in their lives, you don't get to hear it. Now, at the same time, some of us excuse ourselves from confronting others because we haven't finished removing every speck and beam of our life. And I would just go to say, y'all, Jesus isn't after us to have it all together. Someone once told me um, as a preacher, he said, hypocrisy is not preaching about something you don't have totally together. Hypocrisy is preaching on things you're not working on. We misuse Jesus' teaching often as an excuse to be closed off, whether to people speaking into us or to speaking to other people. And Jesus' point is not that we all have specks and beams and therefore I shouldn't correct someone else or that no one should correct me. Jesus is calling me to start with myself so that I can serve my sibling. First, take the beam of wood out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother and sister's eye. Friends, the Christian spiritual life is, not, is becoming people of love. Our pastor, John Mark, who's transitioning next week, and Tyler, they would both say the same thing. The, the, the Christian spiritual life is actually becoming people of love. So let me tell you something that's so fascinating to me that I've actually honestly never really thought of until this past week. Even our sanctification is not just for ourselves. Even our becoming more like Jesus is not just for me to feel good. It's not only for me to get healed. It's also for the healing of those around me. And sometimes what happens is we get so focused on ourselves. And this is truthfully an issue that we have to face in a, in a church, in a space that's so focused on spiritual formation and emotional health. We can honestly be so inwardly focused on the other extreme where we're so focused on ourselves that we actually oddly become selfish about our formation where it becomes about me just getting healthier and me just being better. And okay, I'm not in a place where I can say anything yet because I have all these other things, which is beautiful, but it's not the whole point. Jesus is also wanting us to confront the speck in our sister and brother's eye by first starting with ourselves so that we can move and help those around us. And family, I think one of the biggest traps of the enemy, it is sin, but can I tell you another one? It's silence. How many people have been hurt, of course, by people who judged? who've said the wrong thing, who've hurt someone else, who've said something without wisdom or love or tact. But at the same time, how many people have been so hurt because no one said anything at all? Because when I was hurting, you were silent. And you didn't speak up. And you didn't say what needed to be said. And you thought it would break our relationship and you didn't want to risk it. But I was hurting and I couldn't see the speck and I couldn't see the beam in my own eye and you saw it, but you say anything. It reminds me of Adam in the garden watching as Eve speaks to the snake. It's when we let our sister or brother make that sexual comment or joke really subtly and just go, oh, they're just playing. But we don't realize that that's forming their heart. It's when we hear someone exaggerate a story, not to be funny, but to boast themselves up. 
and we don't later lovingly say, hey, I love you without those extra details. It's all the ways that the enemy gets us, not only with sin, but with silence. And while I think the language silence is violence is sometimes ridiculous, sometimes silence really is violence to the soul. It damages the people inwardly, our sisters and brothers. Or as Proverbs 26 says, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. What if we became people who wounded our friends well, who just knew how to, like a surgeon, lovingly wound? Hey, hey, I'm here. I'm going to wound you just a little bit, but it's for your healing. We humans, we're shaped by how people touch us. We're like those t- transformers. Like, I grew up with transformer toys. It's like, what, what's one object? It's a car at one point, but based on who touches it, all of a sudden it becomes something so much better. We as humans, we're shaped by the people who touch us, both for healing and for hurt. So how do we do this well? For all my pragmatists, how do we do this well? First of all, do it with wisdom. Remember verse 6, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs. Why? Or they'll trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Anyone ever read that and just felt like that was so random? <laughs> like, Jesus, you were on a roll with don't judge, and now you're talking about pigs and pearls and dogs and tearing and tear and like, what, what is going on? Scholars have different opinions on it. Some say Jesus is talking, some think this is fully an analogy or, or, like, or um, I think like a metaphor where everything has something that correlates to it. And so it's talking about, you know, Gentiles and the Jesus giving his teaching to just the Jews. Or maybe it's talking about the message of the kingdom is what some scholars argue. Some scholars say, and I think this is at least the, at least the 30,000 foot view, that Jesus is talking at the very least about wisdom. Because at the very least, you have to have wisdom to differentiate between pigs and dogs and what they're able to handle. We do not blame the pig for not valuing pearls. Pigs just don't value them. And what Jesus is trying to say is that people must value what you value or you'll provoke the wrong response. That means we need wisdom, i.e. we need timing, tone, relational equity, which is probably one of the problems with social media, because most of those people you don't have relational equity with. You're not accomplishing what you think you are. So, what we, so, so we need wisdom. We need, we need this idea of tone and timing and relational equity. We, but here's the thing. Some of us are like, well, I'm, that, that's not me. I don't know. You know you can pray and ask the Spirit to allow you to grow in wisdom. So even some of us today, your takeaway is, God, Spirit of God, would you grow me in wisdom? Would you just like, God, help me become more of a wise person? God, would you do that in me? Jesus is saying that we have to use wisdom to know if people are able to receive what's being given. And here's just another pragmatic thing. Y'all, that means we need to be patient with God's timing in other people's lives. I don't know if y'all caught that. We need to be patient with God's timing, with the way that he's working on other people's lives, the way God's working on other people's sin. Often what we do is we like even expose something in someone's life. Hey, I want you to see this. And then we're frustrated that it doesn't happen the next day or the next week. Or can I even tell you something? This again, I'm not even married, but here's some more marriage advice. Um, <laughs> maybe it's a plank in my eye. We'll see. But often... Um, Oh, like, do I even say this? Oh, geez. Be patient with other people's stuff, what God's having in other people's lives. Um, 
Often what happens when we ask people to stop behaviors, see there's a difference between asking someone to start doing something and stop. When you ask someone to start, you see everything. Every time they do it, you see it. When you ask someone to stop, you'll never see all the times they don't do it. You'll just see the one time they mess up again. So often we're getting frustrated at someone who's actually stopped 10 times and you just saw time 11. So if you could even like in your relationships, in your marriage, like maybe you can assume good intent that people have actually like multiple times been stopping and you just comp the one time that they haven't done. You'll never notice all the other times they don't. You typically just notice the one time they do. Do it with wisdom. Second of all, write this down. Do it in love. This is what love means. Love means pursuing the person's well-being, pursuing the person's healing, pursuing the person's restoration. So if what we're saying with people does not actually do it in love, it does not pursue the well-being of another the same way Christ has pursued our own well-being, don't do it. If your motivation is to prove a point, let it go. What our motivation has to be as people of God is love, to, to pursue the well-being of other people. Love looks like being patient. It's patient. It's kind. You know what love also looks like? And this is the most frustrating one for me. Love is when you walk with somebody two steps forward, and then you go back three steps too. It's when they take progress, and they get going, and they're doing well, and then all of a sudden, the compulsion comes back, and the addiction comes back, and the issue comes back, and they're back in the habit again, and love says, no, baby. It stays. It endures. It keeps on going. It says, you know what? If we go 10 steps forward and 30 back, I am here to the end. I'm not leaving you. You know what? One of the problems is with the way that we judge is that so often, we just don't stick it out, and what people need really isn't just the judgment. It's not just to see the speck. They just need someone to hold their hand and walk with them to the end, because we're deep down longing for is to be fully seen and fully loved. To be seen in all of my specs, all of my flaws, all of the issues that's going on. It's loving. It looks like not pushing people, not showing the person the speck and then pushing them away. It actually says, oh, I'm going to get that much closer. Every time I share something, I'm staying that much closer. I'm that much more committed. I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying by your side. I ain't going anywhere because I'm committed to you. I'm committed to your well-being. It's like Paul, when he talks to the church, when he writes Galatians, which is a savage letter. And Paul, he calls out Peter. If you read Galatians 1 and 2, it's nuts. Paul's calling out Peter, y'all. Like, just read chapters 1 and 2. Paul's like, yeah, uh, Peter was being kind of weird with the whole Jew-Gentile thing. A little bit racist, but like, it's in the scripture. Paul's like, yeah, he's eating with this group at this time, and then he's not with other people. And you know what Paul says? Paul doesn't say, yeah, Peter's a joke, or Peter's a racist, or Peter's this. Paul says Peter was outside of the step of the gospel. Peter, Paul actually just said, he invited Peter to get back in step with the gospel. Our invitation is just come back, get in step, and I'm going to walk with you step by step. Love points out the speck without making declarations about someone's identity, which neither the political left or the right seem to be able to empower us to do. This is why many of us at this point will agree with this teaching, but why will we not live it out? <laughs> why will we get a good amount of amens and take your time, baby, and say it again and slay, but on Monday it'll be hard to live it out? And this is what I feel like I came here to say. I think the reason most of us won't live it out is because of fear. Isn't it interesting that the last command before do not judge is do not worry? Fear that if I don't say something, if I don't make the point, if I don't say something, if I don't say the thing, if I don't make the comment about this party or whatever, then things aren't going to work out and the world's going to fall apart. Do you know what the fear really is behind that? It's I don't trust God to do the good sorting. Deep down, I don't trust that God will work in people's lives. I don't trust that God will really handle the world well. I don't trust that God can handle the problems in my city and my society. I don't trust God that he can handle the nuances of the complexity of being in relationship with people who vote differently than me. I don't really that trust God. If I don't say something, God's not going to take care of it, so I have to. 
It's fear that I will be left unsafe or rejected or controlled or alone. Fear that I'll get hurt again. Fear that if someone says something to me and I can't fix it fast enough, I won't be good enough. Maybe fear that I'll never be able to change. The fear that I I can't receive any criticism or any words because I don't know that I can actually fix this. I don't know. The deep fear that if I'm really deeply seen, I can't be deeply loved. You know, some witnesses shared about an interaction that Jesus had with a woman. And this woman is brought into, and if you can imagine this dusty, hot day in the middle of Israel, this woman's brought in front of Jesus. And all these other people caught her in sin. They caught her having an affair, caught her committing adultery. I mean, she's wrong. She's messed up. There's a, a speck, maybe even a beam. And what does Jesus do with the beams and the specks? Some of us know that feeling of what it's like to be caught in the act. Some of us know the weight of being caught in our sin and the way our brokenness interacts and hits and hurts other people. Some of us know that. So it's hard to hear teaching like this because we're like, oh, I can't really be seen and loved. And what does Jesus do with the woman who's caught completely in the middle of her specks and her beams? The first thing he does, he says, whoever is without sin, whoever doesn't have a speck or a beam, why don't you start the process? And it's interesting to me that the people who are accusing, they leave old, from the oldest to youngest, which typically hopefully means that in time and with age and with wisdom, we actually become more aware of the beams and the specks. They begin to go from oldest to youngest to the point where there's no one left in Jesus. He gets down, I imagine. And if you, it helps you to close your eyes, imagine Jesus in that hot, dusty day he gets down. He looks at that woman face to face, like eye to eye. And I can imagine that woman so full of shame just looking down. But you know that feeling when someone's looking at you and you can't wait. And I bet Jesus just waits. And he waits until she looks up at him. Jesus looks this woman in her eyes, this woman full of specks. And he goes, where are your accusers? The only person without sin. You realize Jesus was the only one without sin. He could have thrown the stone. And Jesus says, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Do you hear the tone and the words of Jesus? Can you see the way that Jesus does that with each of us each day? Where Jesus, now this is the thing, a lot of us hear that story and we hear, oh, Jesus doesn't judge. No, no, no. Go and sin no more. Jesus names the sin. But he doesn't only name it in the woman. He names it in the accusers. He names it everyone. Jesus somehow levels the playing field. He says, no, but neither do I condemn you. Jesus actually has this ability to hold the tension of both the weight and the gravity of the specks and the logs and the planks and the beams without condemning us for them. That is how Jesus deals with the planks in our lives. Whereas Psalm 103 says, like, I'll bless the Lord and forget not his benefits, who heals all your diseases and forgives all your sins. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever, for he has not dealt with us as our sins deserved or repaid us according to our iniquities. Is anybody thankful for that? That Jesus does not treat you and I as our sins deserve? Oh no, but he says, baby, go and sin 
no more. Or as 1 John chapter 4 says, perfect love, it casts out all fear. Do you know what we actually need is we need our fears dispelled. And so what is, what, the deep thing we actually need, like deep down, we need that fear of not being able to be seen fully and loved fully. We need it dispelled. What does Jesus do in order to do that? Well, Jesus, for a bunch of people with specks and beams and splinters and planks, he himself chooses to get up on a beam, back full of splinters, and he takes on the weight He takes on all of it. Jesus actually knows what it's like not to have a beam in his eye, but to be tied to one, strapped, nailed to it on his back. He takes on public shame. You realize the cross is a public shaming, buck naked, bleeding, hanging, gasping. He takes the shame and judgment and humiliation so that you and I with our specks and beams, we'll never have to feel that. Jesus now isn't only trying to get us to not judge. Do you see that? Like, Jesus isn't here just trying to get us to judge. And if that's the thing you take away, that's beautiful. But he's going after so much deep, something so much deeper than just don't judge. He's going for our hearts. And so what does he do? First of all, he does it himself. He takes on specks and beams and planks and splinters in his back himself, which should melt our hearts. Because you realize that he's up there because of me, because of my specs, because of my planks, because of my beams. Like that beam that Jesus nailed to is really mine. Jesus is the one who pulls it out and nails himself to it. It melts our hearts because we need motivation. And the only true motivation is to see that sort of love. But we don't only need motivation, family. You don't need to walk away here being supercharged and excited about this dude who came from Portland. What you need is empowerment. And so Jesus dies, but then he's raised back to life. And he pours out the Spirit of God to all of us. So that we would, one, first of all, the Spirit of God, what does he do? He shows us the love of God constantly. And he keeps reaffirming it. So when the accuser, which is interesting that the enemy is often called the accuser of our souls. When the accuser, when the one who points out the judgment, when he begins to point out the planks and the splinters and the beams. Oh, no, 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 no. The Spirit of God reminds us who we deeply are. It's why we can cry out, a father. We need the spirit of God, first of all, to remind us of who we really are. And then second of all, the spirit of God empowers us to become the sort of people who can freely love others the way God has loved us. You and I, we don't just need motivation. We don't just need a good teaching. We need a good God who will empower us by his spirit to become these sort of people. And so what do we need to do? We need to continuously receive from Jesus. Keep going back to him. Keep asking him. Keep going to Jesus with your whole self. Like go to Jesus with every splinter. and Jesus, would you show me the splinters and the beams that I have? And Jesus, would you love me through them? Would you bring healing to me? Jesus, and, and it's crazy. You know, we should never feel like we can't go to Jesus with those beams. And we should never feel like someone is attacking us for something, a beam or a plank that Jesus hasn't already loved us in. Do you know how incredible it would be if we were just people who already went to Jesus with our beams? Then anyone who shows us those, any other person who comes up to us, we've already been so loved by God that that can't break us or hurt us. A call for us is to re-experience what Jesus has done. Go to, and then second of all, go to Jesus. Second of all, go to others with your whole self. First, we go to Jesus with our whole self. Second of all, we go to others with our whole self. I've been doing this for the past few months, actually a couple of years, three, four years now with some of my guys. Every week we get on FaceTime, we talk for an hour, and we ask each other really direct questions. And we show each other the beams and the specs and the planks, and then we point them out in one another. And then we stay so loving and deeply committed to one another. 
Shame does not produce godliness, but you know what Romans says is the kindness of God leads us to repentance. We need people's kindness. Experiencing that sort of love from one another will change us. I will never forget years ago having a mentor in my life point out a huge beam in my own life. And I walked in to have this conversation with a friend. He told me what it was about before, and I remember being so nervous because I felt so exposed. Anyone ever felt like that? Where your stuff is on display and you feel like that woman in the dust and you're just like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so ashamed. And I remember walking to meet my friend and he was, I was so feeling all that weight and shame of the specks and the splinters and the beams. And my friend looked at me. He's like, you were so dumb. And I love you so much and I'm not going anywhere And I'll be here as we pull that speck out slowly and surely. I'm not going anywhere. Can I tell you what has brought more healing to my life is the people who saw me completely and loved me deeply. That is what we need. That is what changes us. We need to be seen and loved, and that's how healing happens. Sticks and stones, they may break your bones, and words can deeply wound you, but words can also heal you. And what if we were that sort of people? Jesus has two major invitations here because he's speaking to a group of people who are all in different places on the journey, just like us. Some of us need to hear Jesus' first call to deal with what's in our lives. This likely means inviting people into our lives to help us. But others of us need to hear Jesus' call to help our sisters and our brothers with what's in their lives. And all of us, are invited to keep experiencing what Jesus has done and is presently still doing for each of us each day. Here's the last thing I just want to touch on. We're, going to done, we're, we're about done. Jesus isn't just trying to heal us individually. Let me say that again. Jesus isn't just trying to heal each of us individually. The picture behind the picture is that this is the sort of people family, community, and kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. That's why Jesus is giving this sermon on a mountainside. He's announcing his kingdom where people are safe, where they belong, where they're seen, where they're loved, and where they're deeply free. A, fam- a community of integrity, honesty, and accountability. A family that keeps on getting healthier and healthier. A people who are all maturing, Some of that maturity comes from self-examination. Some comes as we allow others to remove our mess. And some comes as we help others. Jesus, what he's really concerned about is the new humanity that he's creating and that he's inviting each of us into right here and right now. And isn't that the real thing we each long for? Like deep down, isn't the deep longing, isn't that why you're here in this room is because you long for the new people that like you, you see that the world that we live in, it's not fully right, it's not all together, but not just people out there, not just politics, it's me and it's those around me. Like there's just stuff in the human heart and isn't the thing that we really long for to be seen and loved and to be in the sort of community. Could you imagine what it'd be like if Garden became the sort of people who were able to judge each other well, who were able to wound each other well, who were able to receive it well? Like what would that do for this community? What would this do for our city? What would that do if we became that sort of people. Imagine it. Could you imagine the joy that would be in this community? The life, the generosity, the diversity. And I'm not just talking about ethnically. I'm talking about diversity of thought, diversity of experience, diversity of background. Could you imagine the sort of people, the sort of bond we would have if we were people who did this well? 
On the flip, can you imagine what will happen if we don't? What will happen to this city if we don't become that sort of people? Imagine the beautiful invitation that Jesus has for you, for your spouse, for your friendships, for your community, for this church, for this city. Could you imagine what it'll be like if we became this? Would you stand with me? I think Jesus's invitation for us, it's deeply beautiful and it's deeply compelling. We can experience the loving way Jesus deals with our specks and our splinters and our planks and our poles and all of the stuff. And I can tell you from experience that the way Jesus and many of his followers have treated me has changed my life. It's changed my heart to both receive and give that loving treatment to others. I think that's the sort of people that Garden is becoming and even presently is. And it's all because of Jesus, his kindness, his grace. And family, that's not just good news. That's a really good God. It's not just good news. That's a really good God. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.